Okay, friends, the story begins. We are continuing the Amida, page 47. Last week, we explored the first three blessings of the Amida. The structure of the Amida is three blessings, praising God, 13 blessings, requesting things from God. And then again, three blessings, thanking God. Just like a fundraising pitch, right? You can't just ask. You gotta, <laughs> um, you gotta sandwich your ask, right? I'm, I'm, I'm teasing, but um, you gotta sandwich the ask. So la last week we explored the first three blessings, which praise God, and we explored how each of these blessings serve as a meditation, a meditation to frame how we praise God. God is the shield of Abraham preserves the perspective, the Abrahamic perspective of altruism. God gives life to the death, which besides for the literal meaning, he revives our, our uh, some, sometimes we lose inspiration. God revives us. We said God is the holy God, right? We described our praise of God in contrast to that of the angels. But now begins the requests. 13 various requests. The first is on page... We're going to do three today. First is on page 47. It's the... Um, besides... For, for, under the shaded box, it's the second paragraph. You graciously bestow knowledge upon man and teach mortals understanding. Graciously bestow upon us from your wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Blessed are you, Lord, who graciously bestows knowledge. We're essentially asking God for wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. At this point, we haven't yet had any knowledge. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you a great story. There was a chassid of the Altareb, the author of the Tanya, who founded the Chabad movement. A devout follower. His name was Rebbein Yamin Kletzker. And visiting Rebbein Yamin Kletzker's shul was a yekesh yid. You know what a yekeh is? Familiar with the term yekeh? The German Jews were referred to as yekes. Why? The reason, so, so the term yekeh literally means jacket. The The traditional Eastern European Jews would wear long jackets. The Germans, the Yekas, would wear short jackets. And that's what so people started calling Jews call they got the, the term the Yekas. But with it came a prototype, a personality style. German Jews, Yekas, are known as being, you know, adapting the German culture of being very precise. You know, like um Rabbi Raleigh comes from a, a traditional Jew uh, German Jewish synagogue, you know, growing up in Manhattan. And he always describes how there was a schedule on Yom Kippur. Kaddish is going to be at this time, taking out the Torah at this time. His services are at 6.30, taking out the Torah 7.36. And people would like time the canter and like, oh, he's got it. That, 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 it's very true to the stereotype of, Jew, of German Jewry. So now this uh, and the stereotype of Hasidic Jews are, is quite the opposite. <laughs> not always the most organized, not always the most timely. So this German Jew, this Yekashayid, is visiting this Chabad synagogue. 
the synagogue of Reb Yemen Kletzker. And things aren't exactly in place as he's used to. What he's used to, when he sees a synagogue, there's often a banner on the ark in all synagogues, in many synagogues, you know, the, in, on, you know, on the curtains or whatever it is, with some sort of biblical verse, an inspiring verse. Right? Have you ever seen that in shuls? And different shuls have different verses that they may choose to have on the ark as something, you know, inspirational. And what he was accustomed to seeing in Germany was the verse, Da lifnemi ata omed. Know before whom you stand. Right? You're about to pray to God. Know before whom you stand. He's used to seeing that verse. And for him, you know, everything needs to be the way it, it has been. He was shocked not to see that. Not to see that reminder. Know before whom you stand. So he says to Rebbe Yemen Kletzker, why don't you guys have that statement? I'm shocked. He says, here in Chabad, we don't have any knowledge yet. We haven't prayed yet. <laughs> we don't have the knowledge. <laughs> We're here to get that knowledge. You're assuming, you're assumed to have had that knowledge already. We haven't gotten there yet. So we've gotten to this point, Dominic, where we don't, have knowledge. We have information, but what you know, we know from time study, what does knowledge refer to? To internalization, internalizing something. When something is emotionally relevant, that's when you know it. So I understand Zayat Coke is 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 uh unhealthy, right? But have I internalized it? No. Exhibit A, right? It's not emotionally relevant to me. Thank God. That's a good thing, I guess. <laughs> um, but the point is, real knowledge means to be emotionally relevant. The wisdom, our openness to understanding, and the concepts we understand, our connection to God should be something that we really know, understand, comprehend, and most importantly, make emotionally relevant. As we mentioned several weeks ago, the blessings of the Amida were compiled, not authored, but compiled by Ezra and his court right after the destruction of the first temple, probably around the first century BCE. They didn't author these blessings, they've compiled them. So these blessings existed, but they weren't really, there was no like set time to recite them or set structure with which to recite them. Who was the first to recite this blessing? Where did it come from? So the Midrash tells it, or, or I think it's the Talmud, tells us something fascinating. Joseph was abducted by his own brothers, sold to the Egyptians, ended up in um in prison for many, many years for a crime he was framed for that he didn't actually do. And in the meantime, Pharaoh has two dreams, right? The dreams of the fat cows and the skinny cows, the full sheaves and the bare sheaves of wheat, the fat cows eat the skin, the skinny cows eat the fat cows, etc. And he's he's bothered by these this dream that he had. And he needs someone to interpret it. And Pharaoh's informed that there's a dream interpreter in the prison. Go get him. 
by the way, this is a great time to plug our new JLI course because our very first lesson is going to be about dreams. Are dreams valid in Judaism? Do you know how to interpret? How do we interpret dreams? Right? Do dreams have any validity? It's going to be a fascinating discussion. Anyways, he he's um. Pharaoh's informed that Joseph can potentially interpret dreams, so he calls Joseph out of the dungeon. And he says, I heard that you can interpret dreams. And what does Joseph respond? No, I can't. God can. I can help. If God so helps me. And Joseph said the blessing, Baruch Atah Hashem, blessed you, Lord, who bestows upon us knowledge. Joseph, in front of the king, was unintimidated and attributed his knowledge to God. When we internalize a certain idea, when we have knowledge, when we have wisdom, secular knowledge, or even knowledge in our context of our relationship with God, we have to attribute it to its giver. We have to give credit where credit's due. If we're going through a hard time trying to understand something in the Torah, ask God to help. This is a beautiful time during this blessing to have in mind that uh, help me understand the Torah that I'm studying. Help me connect to it. Help me relate to it. Help me comprehend it, make it emotionally relevant. But most importantly, help me connect to you, God, in a very emotional and real way. The commentaries on the sitter say something interesting. When a Kohen would bring a sacrificial offering in the Beit HaMikdash, the Kohen had to be present, present at mind. The Kohen had to be intentional. But the whole idea of sacrifices, as we're le learning in the Torah portions now, currently... There are mechanisms by which we can approach God. The Hebrew word for sacrifice, korban, means to approach, to come close. Right? Exactly. It's the idea of kavana. In order for this Kohen to do the sacrifice right, he has to have kavana. He has to be intentional. He has to have knowledge. He has to be aware. Were he to lack that awareness, his sacrifice doesn't count. See, commentaries say we're about to, we're approaching God. And we're doing it with the sitter in lieu of the sacrificial offerings. The sitter was formally compiled once we were unable to bring sacrificial offerings because of the, the destruction of the temple. We are like that Cohen, approaching God. But the Cohen is doing it on behalf of all of us. We're doing it on behalf of our own selves. And if we want to do it properly, we got to be present at mind. We ask God, help us have this knowledge, this ability to connect, this ability to be present. Take a look for a quick second on page 125. 
you'll see this blessing repeated verbatim in the Marib service, in the Arvit, in the evening service. And you'll see in the middle of the blessing, the shaded blocks. Saturday nights, we add that great that shaded box. That's Havdalah. The tradition is we recite Havdalah with a cup, with a candle, with the spices in the Saturday evening. But we also insert a uh, miniature Havdalah in the middle of the Amidah. And it's inserted in this blessing, the blessing where we ask God for knowledge. That's where we do Havdalah. Why? Because what is Havdalah? Havdalah it means we are becoming aware that there's a distinction between the Holy Sabbath and the, and the mundane week. There's a difference between holiness and mundanity. Is that a word? Mundanity, mundanity, I don't know. There's a difference between that which is holy and that which is mundane. There was a right and wrong. There's a holy and profane. And what does it take to recognize the difference? Wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Asking God for knowledge empowers us. Asking God to best know him empowers us to make good decisions. To distinguish between and ask ourselves, is this sacred or is this profane? Is it godly or does it hide God? Does it connect me to my soul? Does it isolate me from my soul? Although we only say that line Saturday night, the connotation is it takes not, we recite that, that, that uh, paragraph specifically in the blessing related to knowledge because it takes knowledge to get there. Okay, before we segue to the next blessing, questions, comments, thoughts, reflections? Well, um, the so the blessing we say right after that, after the um, gray box, is that the that's the fourth blessing? It's it's part of it. It's the gray box is inserted in the middle of the blessing related to knowledge. So like, if you, if you, I guess my question is how how to um, number the blessings. Like when we start the Mita, we start right away with a Ruhata. Um, is that considered a blessing or is that part of like where, where does the blessing? Where, so where, where do the numbers go? Yeah. So, so when we say Baruch Atah Hashem, Magen Avraham, Shield of Abraham, that concludes blessing number one. It starts with Baruch. Yeah, no, no. So it's all part of one blessing. Yeah. When we say Baruch Atah Hashem Mechayeh HaMetim, revives the dead, that concludes blessing number three. When we say the blessing of Baruch Atah Hashem, blessed you, Lord, Hakel Kadosh, the Holy God, that's blessing number three. And then the blessing we're studying now is blessing number four. Inserted within blessing number four, Saturday nights, is a, is a miniature Havdalah. Because blessing number four, about knowledge is related to making distinctions, which is what Havdalah is all about. Making the distinction between right and wrong, holy and profane. So this is kind of an, an, an aside question, but after, or when we start each, when in the repetition, when the Hazan starts the uh, um, blessing, we say, 
Um, do we say that on the very first Baruch? Um, uh, yeah. We, so we basically for that first blessing, we say it twice. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. So, so the way blessings are structured to hold discussion for another time, but we'll, 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 uh, we'll have to get into that. Um, so the, the uh, prayer we just did uses the word das and do I do I remember right from uh, from uh, Tanya that there's three kinds of knowledge? Right. So so, so good question. The, the Tanya references it, we we say over here um, graciously bestow upon us wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Right in the Hebrew end of the first line of that blessing, Chanenu. Chabad. Right, exactly. Chanenu, uh, graciously give us, me'itcha, from yourself, Chachma, wisdom, bina, understanding, vidaas, knowledge. The acronym of that is Chabad. Because Chabad is a, um, uh, is an approach by which we intellectually internalize and make sense of our relationship with God. So is this where Chabad got its name from, from this blessing? Um, good question. Partially. Partially. It's part of the the, the ten spheros, the ten divine descriptions, various uh, personality traits that God uh, contains. So this... Just for number again. So this this is the the third third blessing. This is the fourth blessing. Fourth. Okay. <laughs> it's yeah. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. This is number four. Um let's move on now to number five. The blessing of Hashivenu, the blessing of Teshuva. Cause us to return our father to your Torah. Draw us near our king, to your service, and bring us back to you in wholehearted repentance. Blessed are you, Lord, who desires penitence. So again, the, the original source of this blessing, the Midrash says, was when Reuven, Reuven was the oldest of, uh, of the 12 tribes of Jacob's children, and Reuven sinned. What did Reuven did, do when he was young? So Reuven was the daughter of Leah, right? Take a step back. Yaakov had four wives. Two of those wives were sisters, Rachel, Leah. He loved Rachel. He had a harder time getting along with Leah. And the truth is the Kabbalists explain a whole backstory. It wasn't just immaturity, but there was actually a whole backstory here of soulmates and stuff like that. But another discussion for another time. But bottom line is... Moving felt like his mother, Leah, wasn't being treated properly. So what he did was he moved Yaakov's, Jacob's bed from one wife's tent back to Leah's tent, even though it wasn't her turn. Again, these are a little bit foreign ideas because we don't uh, we don't engage in, in polygamy and, and things like that. But um Reuben was reprimanded for that at the end of Jacob's life. 
when he was giving his parting blessings to his children, he was reprimanded for that. You got to trust your parents. <laughs> Jacob knew what he was doing. Reuben was a young guy, and sometimes we think we know better. <laughs> so Reuben did teshuvah. He repented. And recited a blessing. Blessed are you, Lord, who desires teshuvah, who desires repentance. And there's a few things to meditate on here. We mess up. And God wants us to return. God assists us in our return. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean we lose free will. Like, uh, we're not able to return anymore, you know? <laughs> Sorry, we're, we're not able to sin because we're God is going to help us return. We're asking God to help us. We're not asking God to do the work for us because God doesn't do that. He helps, he doesn't force. We refer to God as our Father and as our King. We do that in other places throughout prayer as well, right? Avinu Malkeinu, our Father, our King. We say, cause us to return our Father to your Torah, draw us near our King to your service. From the soul's perspective, we're like a child to God. And he's a father. That's the nature of the relationship. It's a very close, meaningful, emotional relationship. And like often with parents and children, it could be a complicated relationship sometimes. So we say, God, let our soul reconnect. As a father. And how do we do that? Through Torah, through Torah study. And what about the king? God is also a king to us. That's the body perspective. The nature of king and uh, a king and his subjects are much more distant than a father and a child. That's why he's able to be the king. You can't be a king if you're not distant. That's the body. The body's a little bit more distant, or at least appears to be more distant to God than the soul. Let us connect with body as well, body and soul, father and king. And that's through service. That's a more dutiful relationship than it is Torah, which is a more emotional relationship. Right? Torah is an intellectual connection to God, whereas the service of just doing the mitzvahs is a more action relationship with God. A body relationship with God, a soul relationship with God. And we say, God, help us connect to these both. Help us do both of these. Okay, blessing number six, the bottom of the page. The blessing of Slach Lanu. Pardon us, our Father, for we have sinned. So th there's a progression here, by the way. Once we become aware of God, that's the blessing of knowledge. We can do Teshuvah. We can repent. We can reconnect. Once we reconnect, we could say, God, alleviate us from the, pardon us from our sins. Pardon us, our Father, for we have sinned. So there's a progression here. Forgive us, our King, for we have transgressed. For you are a good and forgiving God. Blessed are you, Lord, gracious one who pardons abundantly. This is so important. We mess up at times, we make mistakes. God, forgive us. 
pardon us. We've become aware. That was blessing number four. We've returned body and soul. That's blessing number five. Now please alleviate us of our guilt. Pardon us. Forgive us. The tradition is that when Yehuda, Jacob's child, sinned with Tamar. Familiar with the story of Yehuda and Tamar? Right? Whole another, we could get into the details another time, but when he um, performed that sin and did teshuva, he said afterwards, Baruch Hashem, blessed are you, Lord, who is gracious and pardons abundantly. This is the source of that blessing. The Tanya says something fascinating. The, the third section of Tanya is a whole part of Tanya that talks about Teshuva. And an important part of Teshuva is trusting that God forgave you. And once God forgave you, you can forgive yourself. Let go because God forgave you. If you did proper teshuva. And you know what the proof is that God forgives us? This is cute. What happens if God doesn't forgive us? We've recited a blessing in vain. We can't recite blessings and say God's name in vain. So the fact that we're saying, Baruch, I tell Hashem, blessed are you, Lord, who forgives abundantly. And the sages established that blessing for a reason. The indication is that God is forgiving us. Otherwise, it would be a blessing in vain. It's like a child who, who wants candy and the parents say no. So the kid says a bracha. <laughs> Shahakal never. Now you're forced to give this child the candy. Right? It's a little bit of manipulation here, but we're not forcing God to forgive us. The indication is that when we do teshuva, God is forgiving. This is fascinating. Um, take a look at the Hebrew. This is going to be harder to see in the English, but take a look at the Hebrew. Bottom of the page, last line. Slach, forgive. Lanu, to us. Forgive us. Pardon us. Ki, the word ki means because. Chatanu, we've sinned. Forgive us because we've sinned. And commentaries say, well, what? Forgive us because we've sinned? Don't you mean forgive us even though we've sinned? What is this forgive us because we've sinned? The way that it's explained is that when a person achieves forgiveness, the relationship has been enhanced. The relationship has become deepened. Like the Talmud says, where a penitent stands, where a Baal Teshuvah stands, the greatest of righteous people can't even stand there. They're on a higher pedestal. Because you've taken darkness and you've converted it to light. A righteous person avoided darkness. A penitent tasted that darkness and converted it, transformed it. This level of relation, this relationship that we have, this connection of, through forgiveness is precisely because we've sinned. I have a question. Yeah. So, you know, in Rosh Hashanah, you have to ask the person for forgiveness before you can ask God for forgiveness. Yeah. Does it work the same with this prayer? Because if it doesn't, I'm mad. <laughs> if it does, 
Yeah, if it doesn't, like it doesn't apply. If it doesn't. It, then, it, no, then, no, no, that, that's a that's a good question. That's a very good question. Uh, no, that that's a this is specifically between for sins between man and and God. Um, when it comes to sins between man and man, we have to you know we do have to settle that. We'll have to settle that independently. But again, it's the same principle. When you do, the relationship is deeper. You know, you know each other on a deeper level. <laughs> Actually, it says that in, I don't forget where, but when we're in the Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur service, it says for sins between God and man, God forgives. But for sins between man and man, God does not forgive. Right. Well, well, well God will forgive once once we settle that amongst them. We yeah, have to so, settle get, them. so you get it. So if you pray every day and then you ask God for forgiveness for something that you've done, but you haven't settled your man things. Then you actually not got no right to say that prayer. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, so yeah, I don't know. Otherwise, you're praying to God in vain because God can't forgive them. Well, but God, yeah. I mean, look, sometimes it does take time to settle things. Um. Yeah, but you have to recognize it and you have to identify it, and then you can pray with confidence. A hundred percent. And I, I think you're raising a very important point that a relationship with God in lieu of a relationship with people doesn't work. Yeah, because every person hand hand. is part of God and every exactly. person should be has come from God. So we have to like kind of like work through down upwards. You can't exactly. work through up downwards. And that's why before even praying, the way beginning of the sitter, going back to page, I think page 12, we said that line, yeah, page 12, I hereby take upon the mitzvah of love your fellow as yourself. Got it. Right? Because we, we have to we we have to settle and, and, and connect with people before connecting with God. Yeah. We have so, to be. So, but all of these things, you're praying, but you kind of have to put it into real life. You can't just pray about it. You have to put it into real life and then you can pray. Right. And vice versa. You pray and hopefully you can apply that to real life as well. Well, if you pray, you know the way the problem is and you can identify it and you can gain, is it das? No, it's knowledge. You get knowledge. Yeah. So you yeah. get insight into what you've done because of all these things that you're praying about. Exactly, exactly. In, in other words, the insight leads to repentance, which leads to forgiveness. But without that insight in the first place, without that knowledge in the first place. So the praying helps you get insight to help you with every other aspect exactly exactly and, and when we do that when we get to this point it's the sin itself that is motivating forgiveness that is motivating this deep relationship i'll, t I'll tell you a great story there was a chassid named abzusha of anapoli abzusha of anapoli was a, a lot of great stories about him a beautiful year He hears a Jew praying, relatively silently, but he hears him singing about forgiveness. Right? He hears him singing. It was it was a different text, but a related text about forgiveness. And Rosisha says, "God, if this guy never sinned, he never would have been able to sing like that. <laughs> he never would have been able to sing this beautiful forgiveness song." Look at the power, the beauty of a sin. If we've never engaged in that darkness, we never would have been able to convert it to light. I met a guy once. 
guy was covered in this guy was uh an observant Jew. Looked like a rabbi. He had a big gray beard and he he looked the part. But his arm was covered in tattoos. Which is against Jewish law. Not to have the tattoo, to get the tattoo. Once you have it, he's he's stuck. The guy's been around the block. You know, everybody has their story. Everybody has their their past. And he he came around. He, he said the Rebbe was very instrumental in in inspiring him and and really showing him the love and the light. He encounters another Jew at one point, and he says to him, "Would you like to put on tefillin?" No, thank you. Come on, why not? He says, I'll be honest with you, I have tattoos and I'm uncomfortable. So this guy who looks the part says, I'll make you a deal. If my tattoos are, are larger than yours, will you put on tefillin? He's, the guy starts laughing. He says, no, I'm serious. The rabbi rolls up his sleeve and the guy goes, okay, where's the tefillin? Let's do it. <laughs> I, we wouldn't be able to get a tattoo so we could convince people to put on tefillin. Right, you can't do something wrong so we could do something so we can bring more light. But if it already happened in the past and it's part of the teshuva process, we bring an incredible amount of light. But right? normally the what we're supposed to do is avoid darkness so we can have light. But somebody who's tasted the darkness already can bring in an incredible amount of light that that couldn't have been reached otherwise. If we didn't sing, we wouldn't be able to have that sweet song and give it to God. Um, so I just have, I thought of a question just because you brought up this story. So I, I've known for a long time now that tattoos are, they're not allowed by halacha. But if somebody didn't know that and they got a tattoo or, or they converted and they didn't remove the tattoo, once they know that, you're not allowed to get a tattoo. Does that mean they also can't remove it at that point? I think so. I'm I'm not I'm not personally familiar with the removal process, but I from what I understand, people it's not removed. <laughs> Better remove it before you find it. Okay. <laughs> okay, that's the story. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. 